Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Russell Brooks. I'm the Associate Director for Executive Education and Online Learning here at LSE. Um, a big hello to those of you who are joining us today for the um, second in our series of five webinars on the theme of skills for a post-COVID-19 world as part of um, the LSE Festival. And welcome back to those who joined us yesterday for Barbara Fasolo's um, session on decision making. Um, as hopefully you know, in this webinar series, we are considering the professional skills that you need for success in a post-COVID world, drawing on faculty who've been involved in the development of LSE's online certificate courses from the, um, with representatives from the full range of social sciences expertise we have here at LSE. Each day, you'll be hearing from colleagues who will be discussing research trends within their field, as well as professional ways for you to upskill your professional capabilities and elevate strategies to meet future challenges and opportunities. You'll also have your chance to pose questions to the speakers. Um, thanks to those of you who, who were, yesterday we asked everyone as you arrived to say where you were from, and I can see everyone started doing that already. So um, hello to Bill from New York, who started us off, Stacy from Cape Town, and I can see that Peter and Catherine have started off a, um, a contingent from Kent. So hello to everyone, wherever you are joining from. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Conson Luck, who will be talking to us on the topic of developing your presence and influence. Influencing others has always been an important skill and it will become even more critical in a post-COVID world. During this event, Consum will provide you with practical tips on how to build your basis of power, influence others and make your voice heard. And as you can see, this is very timely because on Thursday, Consum's new book, Making Your Voice Heard, will be published. So you'll hear a bit, get a bit of an insight as to what you can expect from that. Just to quickly tell you a little bit more about Conson. So Conson is the convener for two of our LSE online certificate courses, MBA Essentials, which was one of our first courses, as well as our online negotiation program, which I think was one of our most creative courses as um, Conson worked with us to, to build a very interactive practical negotiation course in an online format. Conson is a professorial lecturer in the Department of Management here at LSE and teaches courses in organizational behavior, leadership, negotiation, and decision-making. Constance's professional background also includes 16 years of experience outside academia, uh, working in management consulting, training and development, uh, and in particular at the Boston Consulting Group. Um, so if you have any questions that you would like to ask Constant, we will, Constant will speak probably as yesterday for those of you who were here, for around uh, sort of 30 to 40 minutes, and we'll then have an opportunity for question and answers. If you would like to ask a question, then please put that in the Q&A box, and then I will try and put as many of those as I can to Consum in the last part of the session. So without further ado, I will hand you over to Consum and um, look forward to enjoying the session. Thanks, Consum. Thank you, Russell. So let me just share my slides. Um, so I was originally going to say, because this is skills for the post-COVID world, and I was originally going to say, well, you know, the, the skills haven't changed that much in pre and post-COVID, but actually, I'm looking at the number of people signed up. For, so there are now 517 people attending this seminar. We've got people from New York, India, Sweden, Malaysia, Kosovo, Mexico, like all over the world 
I think maybe um, communication and having presence and influence is more important in the post-COVID world because you have more reach. Like I'm, I'm reaching more people than I ever would have been able to in a live session. There's no way we could have fit. I mean, now we're up to 523 people. There's no way we could have fit that many people into an LSE, um, LSE lecture theater. Okay, so let, let me get started. The, the, the reason I got interested in this topic, so what this topic is about is not just general influence. This is about how do you speak up to people who have more power than you do? So I call it upward influence because you're communicating up the hierarchy. And the reason I got interested in this was because, I mean, my whole life I've had trouble kind of speaking up. But when I was working at the Boston Consulting Group in Hong Kong, I was, I was in charge of training the consultants. And one of the things I was asked to teach was something called upward management. And this idea of upward management is getting the junior people to kind of push back on their bosses. If, when they're, and it's this idea of one of the senior partners said to me, um, I, I want my staff to be my sparring partners. You know, I, I want my team to be my sparring partners because we need to get to the best solution. We need to get to the best outcome. And the only way we can do that is by kind of pushing on each other and not, not just agreeing with everything. And when I started to teach upward management, I had a mixed response. I had some consultants that were saying, oh yeah, yeah, I already do that. And I had others who were like, are you joking? Are you trying to get me fired? And so I just became more and more interested in this whole idea of speaking up, like upward influence. So when I went to do the PhD, that's what I studied. And so this is, I'm gonna share with you some of what I've learned about it. So first of all, a good starting point is to talk about the channels of communication. So there are four channels of communication. Kinesthetic, which we don't use anymore, but maybe we will someday. It's touch, like shaking someone's hand or proximity. So um, back when we used to be in the same room with each other, how close you stand to someone or how close you sit to someone communicates something. So there, there's something you communicate when like pat someone on the back, et cetera. Visual, there is a lot that we communicate visually. So this includes everything. How does a person look? How do they dress? What is their body language? What is their facial expression? All of these things are communicated through the visual channel. The paralinguistic channel and the last one, the linguistic channel, these I, I find really interesting because what, what we do here is we separate the words from the delivery of the words. So the paralinguistic channel is the voice, but it's everything in the voice that's not the actual words. So it's things like pausing, sighing, laughing. And any of these sounds, it's also things like the tone with which I'm speaking, whether my voice is monotone or it's, you know, the pitch is varying. All of these things are paralinguistic. And then the, the one verbal channel is the linguistic channel, which are the actual words. Okay, so we're gonna run a little poll right now. And it's going to ask you how many channels of communication are we using in this Zoom lecture? So please, can you answer? I'd like to see what the answer is. So far, I've, I've, I've run this every time I've done this lecture, like, 
even with my students. And I actually did it once with a bunch of academics when I was talking to them about how to teach on Zoom. And I've never had 100% answer the same thing. So yes, so this is basically very similar to the result I normally get. The majority say three, and then we get a little scattering of people who say the others. It is three. It's, it's, so um, right now we've got three channels of communication because the one channel we're not using is the kinesthetic. We can't touch each other yet. I don't know, maybe someday we will be able to, you know, through the screen. But otherwise we're using the visual because you can see me, paralinguistic because you can hear me and linguistic because obviously I'm using words. So three channels of communication. Think about this because now you know there are four channels of communication. I mean, the most we're allowed to use right now is three, but when you're on the phone, you're reducing it down to two because you can't see the person. And then when you write an email or a text, you're reducing it down to one channel of communication. And that's where miscommunication becomes more likely because it's one out of four channels. So the next time, you know, think strategically about this. The next time you have something difficult to communicate or something controversial to communicate, try to increase the, the number of channels that you're using to reduce uh, miscommunication. Now, I do want to say something about online and offline, because a lot of what I talk about uh, was developed in an offline environment, but it's still relevant the one thing I would say that's different about the online environment is there are two things we need to think about that we don't normally think about offline, and that's lighting and sound quality. So if you want to be influential, people have to be able to see you. Like if you're in the shadows, that's not going to help. And secondly, if you want to be influential, people have to hear you. And this is something, I mean, I, I can't emphasize this enough. I, I did this with one of my colleagues, actually, when I was trying to convince him to invest in a pair of headphones. And I, I spoke to him without my headphones on, and then I put them on, and he was like, wow, the sound quality is completely different. So just keep that in mind in an online environment, that the, the sound quality is important, because if people can't hear you properly, then you're not going to be as influential. But otherwise, the general principles are the same. The main one being, the one I always point out here, is how important the paralinguistic is. We don't often, we don't spend enough time thinking about the paralinguistic. We spend a lot of time, like when we have to give a presentation, we spend a lot of time thinking about the visual. You know, how am I going to dress? What are the slides going to look like? We spend a lot of time thinking about the words. What should I be saying? We don't spend a lot of time thinking about, am I monotone? Should I be pausing? When should I be pausing? So I would encourage you to record yourself and just listen to yourself and, and figure out, do I need to push myself a bit more? Do I need to be a bit more, you know, um, use more pitch, use more variation, use some pauses? Okay, so let's take this back to being influential. If you want to be influential, here's the short list of things you should pay attention to. And this is, anyone who's taken a presentation skills course, um, this is not going to be surprising. What will be surprising is how short this list is. Because when I did the PhD, I wanted to see, like, what's actually supported by research. And, you know, once you look at research, like that long list of things you learn in presentation skills training, a lot of it is not actually supported by research. 
So this, this is a short list that makes you look more confident, which then makes you appear more influential and leader-like. So let me explain the short list. First of all, eye contact while speaking, because eye contact while listening conveys warmth. Eye contact while speaking is what conveys confidence. So both, basically, you should have both. Speaking audibly with a confident tone, speaking fluidly. So this means using pauses, but not filler words. Pausing is really important. People need you to pause so that they can take in what you've just said. Filler words are things like, um, uh, like, you know, I used to say like, you know, together. Filler words are distracting. And we use them because we're uncomfortable with silence, but silence would be so much better. So if you're the kind of person who uses a lot of, um, yeah, like, you know, like, um, yeah, yeah. Um, the next time you feel one of those coming on, just replace it with a bit of silence. People will appreciate it and they'll find you somehow more engaging. So that's speaking fluidly. Using confident gestures, what that means is no fidgeting. Fidgeting are small repetitive movements. Now online, it's actually easy to not fidget. You just keep your hands out of the line of the, the camera. But in person, we often were playing with a pen or maybe fiddling with our hair. Now the thing is, don't keep your hands away all the time because then you're not using any gestures and gestures can be really effective when you're trying to make a point standing up straight, or in this case, sitting up straight, and taking up space. So when we're in person, when we're offline, taking up space shows dominance or control of the room. Some people take up more space than others. Online, actually, it's much more democratic because we all have the same size Zoom box. So we don't really have to worry so much about taking up space in an online environment. Okay, so what happens if you use this short list? All these wonderful things. So these are experiments where they looked at, they took an actor who was giving the same speech. And in one version, the actor was using the list that I just showed you. And in the other version, the actor was doing the opposite. And simply by changing the delivery, it changed the way people perceive this person. And look at this list. I mean, this, this is a pretty amazing list of things. Charismatic, effective, Competent? Yes, we confuse confidence with competence. If you look confident, people think you're more competent. And so this is a really important thing to remember when you're making a first impression. So things like job interviews, when you're presenting to a large audience, when you're the first few months of a new job. I wouldn't want you to be too self-conscious about this. But in those first impression type situations, that's when you really do want to pay attention to the list that I gave you. Okay, so why is this? Why are we so susceptible to, if someone stands up straighter, uses more eye contact, sounds more confident, why are we then more likely to think that they're more competent and more leader-like? Well, this has something to do with cognitive psychology. In cognitive psychology, we have something called categorization theory. And it looks at the way humans categorize things. And typically the way we categorize things is we have a category and we come up with one 
critical attribute for that category. So for example, square shaped objects, the one critical attribute is, I always like to see if an audience can figure this out because oftentimes it takes quite a bit, quite, quite, quite some time for an audience to figure out. It's four equal sides. It's not just four sides, it's four equal sides, the square shaped objects. Now, the problem is when we have a human category, it's very difficult to find that one critical attribute. In most cases, humans are so diverse that you can't find that one critical attribute that defines that category. So for example, I remember learning this in class and one of my classmates said, what about men and women? Isn't it the sexual organs? And the answer is no, because we have, we have hermaphrodites, we have transgender people, we have humans are too diverse. So you can't, not even for something that seems like such a basic category, do you have that one critical attribute? So then what do we do if we don't have that one critical attribute? Well, what we do is we create a prototype in our minds of what we think are the most representative attributes of that thing. In other words, we're creating a stereotype. Okay, so some researchers did some research to figure out if leader was one of these, what, what they call fuzzy categories, a, a category that does not have one critical attribute. And the way they did this research was they had um, 11 categories of leaders. I'm not showing you all of them. There was also a political leader, sports leader, et cetera, et cetera. And they had a long list of attributes such as honest, aggressive, decisive, strong, unemotional, unemotional, et cetera. And they had people assign these attributes to the different categories of leaders. And they were looking for that one critical attribute that would apply to all 11 categories. And clearly they didn't find it because I put that on the slide. There was one that came close though. Intelligent applied to 10 out of the 11 categories. They didn't say which category it didn't apply to. I was going through their research, like which category of leader doesn't need to be intelligent, but they didn't say. But so what this means is leader is a fuzzy category. So the way we judge whether someone is a leader or leader-like or deserves to be influential is we compare them to this prototype in our minds. And the prototype is based on a composite of the most representative attributes. Now, where do those most representative attributes come from? They come from the world around us. They come from the culture around us. They come from what we see in the media, what we see in the history books. And so you can see how this would create a challenge, a barrier to people who don't fit that mainstream. The prototype, the leader prototype for most people, not for all people, like when it comes to people, nothing is ever 100%. There is so much diversity. But for the majority of people, the leader prototype reflects the mainstream. And so if you're not part of that mainstream, it, it becomes more difficult. It's even more difficult, however, if you're female. So the leader prototype tends to be you know, representative of the majority race, the majority religion, um, able-bodied, heterosexual, all of these things that you would expect. Um, and of course, male. Now, the, the reason women have, um, so women have a challenge just like all of these other groups, but there's an extra challenge for women because there's something called the gender stereotype. 
So like I say on the top of the slide here, the leader prototype clashes with the female stereotype. So we've got the male stereotype, which we call agentic. Agentic means you're the agent. You're the one making things happen. We've got the female stereotype, which is called communal. You care about the community. You're kind, you're warm, you're sympathetic. Well, the, the leader prototype matches the male stereotype because historically the majority of men, uh, the majority of leaders have been men. We live in patriarchal societies. And by the way, patriarchal, there's, I'm not using patriarchal in any sort of pejorative sense. I'm using it in its descriptive sense. Um, patriarchal just means the, the majority of powerful positions in society are held by men. So a matriarchy would be the opposite. The majority of powerful positions in society are held by women. So clearly we live in patriarchies. And so this is why the, the prototype of a leader matches the male stereotype. The problem for women is that this gender stereotype that I'm showing you here is prescriptive. It's not just descriptive. So it's not just simplifying the world. It's actually saying men should be agentic and women should be communal. And so that's the problem is that when women are in a leadership position, they have to be agentic because if you're a leader, you need to be decisive. You need to be assertive to a certain extent. I mean, it's nice if you're also kind, warm and sympathetic, but you're not gonna be considered a leader if you're not agentic. But by being agentic, people then assume they're not communal. They're, they're not being the way a woman should be, which is kind, warm and sympathetic. And that's where you get backlash. So backlash does not question the woman's competence. This is the way backlash sounds. I think she's highly competent. No, no, she's very good at her job. She's very good at her job. She's just, you know, she's a little bit difficult. She's just, she's a bit hard to work with. That's the way backlash sounds. So it's, it's more about likability because that's what's related to the gender stereotype. Okay, so if we think about what is bias, and this is, I'm clearly I'm talking about gender bias here. Error means you miss the bullseye, but you're all over the place. Bias means you miss the bullseye, but it's predictable. You're moving in a certain direction. So like I just said earlier, the way backlash sounds, the way gender bias sounds is when a woman is denied promotion or something because she's not feminine enough or um, this, this was an actual court case where a woman was denied promotion because they, it said in there, she needs to go to charm school. So this is consistent with the female stereotype. Now this can happen to men as well. For men, what it would sound like is he's not tough enough. You know, he, he doesn't put his foot down enough. He's not strong enough. And that's consistent with the male stereotype. Now, Bias happens because we use these shortcuts in our minds. Like women are supposed to be this way, men are supposed to be this way. Bias generally, like these shortcuts generally are things that we need to have. We can't not have shortcuts. So if, if I was walking down the street and a dog started barking at me, I would cross the street because to me, barking dog, danger, cross the street. Now, if I were to not be biased, if I were to not use that shortcut, because the dog could say to me, why are you being so biased against me? I'm just expressing myself. And that would be true. So if I were to not be biased, barking dog, I would take my phone out and, okay, what kind of dog is this? Is it dangerous? Should I cross the street? I mean, we can't do that 
for everything in our lives. We, we just wouldn't function. We wouldn't get anything done. But when it comes to important decisions such as hiring and promotions, that's when we need to take the extra time. That's when we need to try to debias. And I can't get into all the ways here about debiasing because the thing is bias is subconscious and it's very hard to debias something that's subconscious. Um, one, of the, one of the best ways actually is to change the systems. So if there's something in the systems, like you don't look at the names on the CVs or you create, you have a rule where the shortlist has to be gender balanced or something systematic that tries to get around the bias that can help. Okay, but one thing, I don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. So there is something worth saving here with these, with this gender stereotypes is the idea of agentic and communal. What we don't want is to associate it with genders. So men can be communal and women can be agentic. Like we can all be both. But I think in leadership, it's actually really useful to think in terms of agentic behaviors and communal behaviors. There will be some situations where you need to be more agentic. Maybe you're communicating to the board of directors. You need to show them that you're strong, you're in charge. There will be other situations where you need to be more communal. Maybe you're working with your team members and you want to show them that you care about them. So I think we don't want to get rid of this idea of agentic and communal. We just want to get rid of the association with gender. Okay, so I'm going to run a second poll here because I'm interested in the results. Um, and this poll says, in your organization, how would you describe the typical leader? Mostly agentic, mostly communal, or a balance of both? And this, I'm just curious. I just want to know, because we now have um, 641 people on this call. So I'd love to know what your leaders are like. Okay, so we've got, that's interesting. We've got 45% saying mostly agentic, 12% saying mostly communal, and 43% saying a balance of both. Now, this is really encouraging to me, because I thought it was going to be mostly agentic. But that's only half the group, or even less than half, 45%. Um, I'm really glad to see that 43% say a balance of both, because this is where we want to be. This, this is what we should be aiming for, is a balance of both, for everybody, for men and women. Okay, and so just the last couple points that I wanted to make here. How do we, how do we combine this balance of both? So demanding and caring, you have very high standards, but you also show the support to help people reach those standards. Authoritative and participative, you, um, you show your authority, you take charge for certain decisions, but for other decisions, you get participation, you listen to people. Self-advocating, other serving. So self-advocating means you promote yourself, you let people know this is what I've achieved because you need to. Otherwise, how are you going to get recognized for the work you're doing? But other serving is you're caring about others and you're helping others. So it's, it's having that balance of both. Distant and approachable. Now, this might sound a little bit strange, but it's, it's things like, um, so, so I kind of walk this balance of distant and approachable. I'm very approachable in that my door is open. I like to talk to people. I will spend time with them if they need my help, but only at work. Like I don't go out after work to the pub. I mean, 
we can't anyway, but you know, back when we were able to, I don't really spend a lot of time outside of work with colleagues or with students. So that that's the kind of distant and approachable um, element. The other tip about being influential, so aside from combining the agentic and communal, is this idea of focusing on your circle of influence. So we all have a very large circle of concern, which is all these things that we're, we're very worried about, the pandemic, the way the country is being run, you know, all of these things, but we don't, we um, can't necessarily do anything about those. We have a much smaller circle of influence, which are the things that we can actually do something about. And the more we focus on the circle of influence, the better it is for our mental health. And the larger that circle of influence becomes, the more we sit in the circle of concern, that's the kind of person, and I'm sure you know people like this, who just, they complain all the time. They're, they're just complaining all the time. They're not doing anything about anything. They're just complaining because it's fun to complain. But it just drags you down after a while. So I'll give you a really great example of living within your circle of influence versus the circle of concern. And this comes from Stephen Covey's book, which I love his book, by the way. Um, he, he was consultant to this guy who was a, a micromanaging boss. And so this boss had a team of people and Covey noticed that this team of people, they just spent all their time complaining about the boss because they couldn't stand this micromanaging boss. Except for one person. This one person on the team, instead of st standing around and complaining with everyone else, kept thinking, what, what does the boss need from me? So when the boss gave him an assignment, he would take it one step further and just go, okay, what else, what else can I do for the boss? What else does the boss need? After a while, after a few months, the boss said to Covey, you know what? There's this one guy on my team. He seems a little bit different from the others. And he started treating him differently. And so now this one guy was not being micromanaged. So of course the other people on the team now started complaining not only about the boss, but about this one guy. But it's, it's a good example of how this guy was living in his circle of influence because he was like, I can't change the boss's behavior. I can't change the boss's personality. I can only control my own attitude and my own behavior. And by doing that, he got noticed and now suddenly the boss is treating him differently. So living in your circle of influence is really important all the time, but especially now when there are so many things that frustrate us and upset us that we can't control. Okay, and the last thing, I want you to try something. I'm not gonna be able to see if you're doing this. I'm just gonna trust you're doing this. So imagine there's a scale of one to 10, one is low energy and 10 is high energy. Sit in your chair like you're a one, okay? Okay, sit in your chair like you're a one. And then sit like you're a 10. So what you should have noticed, all you did was change the way you were sitting in your chair. What you should have noticed was your energy level shifted just a bit. And I use this as an example to show you, I mean, this is within your circle of influence. Managing your energy is within your circle of influence and it doesn't take much. It's, you know, changing the way you sit in your chair, maybe standing up and walking around the room, listening to a bit of music. And the more senior you become, the more important it is that you manage your own energy because energy is contagious. 
even online, energy is contagious. And so just keep this in the back of your mind. If you want to be more influential, if you want people to really pay attention to you, you need to manage yourself first. That's the starting point. Okay, so I have to finish with this slide because I can't not. I mean, the book is coming out on Thursday of this week, purely coincidence. Um, but that's in the book, I talk more about exactly what I'm talking about here. But I also talk about things like imposter syndrome, cultural differences, and, you know, lots of practical tips and exercises. Okay, and I'm going to stop here. So we have time for questions. Thanks. Thanks, Hansa. That was, uh, that was brilliant. Um, so we've got some, we've, we've had a good number of questions coming through on the Q&A. So I'm going to try and pick out the ones that, that, that are, seem to be the most popular at the moment. And please do keep asking questions and we'll get through as, as many as we can. Um, so the first one comes from Lama. C can you, uh, the question is, how can we improve the way that we sound and our voice tone? Do you have any kind of exercises or top tips that can actually help with this? I used to work with a lot of consultants who were very monotone. And the way I tried to help them change being monotone was to read books to children. Meaning like when you read children's books, you kind of have to play around with it and it's fun and you act out the different characters. And so that, that was one tip that I gave. It's really, if you, if you take some, voice classes or some acting classes. And a lot of these acting, like RADA these days does this. RADA is the Royal Academy for the Dramatic Arts. They give classes for business people. That's the type of thing that will really help. Yeah, I've done one actually. And it's one of the hardest things I ever did was with some actors. Yeah, li li I mean, they, it was an incredible experience, but you really do learn. and, and, and it, and I think it can push you out of your comfort zone if this is something that doesn't come naturally to you, which was definitely the case for me. OK, I'm going to take a set of three and uh, questions. I'll, I'll do them in turn. But unsurprisingly, given this is skills for a post-COVID world, there's quite a few questions about communicating on Zoom. So um, the thanks, thanks to everyone for those. Let's start with, with, with Nadia, who says, as you were just doing now, she often has to present um, to a screen on uh, without necessarily seeing the people who are there. So you don't get a sense of any immediate response back. Um, and, and actually, that's quite un, sort of she says, leads her to hesitate. I think it is very, very difficult. I agree. Um, do you have any like what do you do to sort of overcome that feeling? It's it's practice. It's practice, because what really throws me off is if this little voice in my head goes, you're just looking at a screen. You don't know if anyone's paying attention. And that just completely throws me off. So I have to silence that voice. And I, I basically picture my audience in my head and just stay focused on my message. I really, it's, it's a discipline. It's just like, I have to stay focused on what I'm talking about because every once in a while, and the first few times I did this, this happened to me this little voice in my head goes, you're just talking to a screen. And then I go, oh, oh, I'd lose my place. So it's really just that staying focused on what you're saying. Brilliant, thanks. And then I guess from big audiences, possibly perhaps to smaller ones, but uh, Ruben asks, what, do you have any sort of particular strategies for when you're having a really difficult conversation 
by by Zoom? Yeah, difficult conversations. What I found is people want to feel heard. So usually with difficult conversations, we have something that we want to tell them that's not very nice. Like we want to tell them they're doing a bad job. Well, if we start by by listening, so rather than trying to force our message across, try to maybe ask some questions. Like clearly that, that presentation didn't go the way we had hoped it would. Can you tell me how, you know, what do you think was happening there or how do you think you could improve or, you know, not leading questions. I'm not saying leading questions. I'm saying sincere questions. Like, um, and so the more you can make it a two-way conversation, the better it can be. But difficult conversations are called difficult for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and the final one on this, um, on Zoom, unless unless anything else becomes, sort of makes its way out the list. So Shula has, has asked, and, and we're a good example of this anyway here, what does using an imitation background uh, on Zoom say about you? Not so much what one you use, but the choice to use one or not. So... I think it's become so commonplace. I don't think it's a big deal. It's just basically telling people I'm probably zooming from my bedroom and I don't want you to see my unmade bed. So I don't think it really communicates anything bad. So, so we shouldn't worry worry about that. Um, or in this case, that is I, I do what I'm told when I'm sent one. Um, Rahul has asked, um, what are your, Constant, uh, what are your top tips for managing upwards when working within a really hierarchical culture so a very hierarchical culture there's a term for that it's called power distance high power distance you have to be careful because in a high power distance culture hierarchy is very top down like by trying to influence upward you're you're overturning the the normal order of things and so it's much more cautious. It's not that it's not possible. It's just something you have to be more cautious about. And I have students from high power distance cultures who basically say, well, I just convinced the boss that it was his idea. You know, I, I presented in such a way that eventually he goes, oh, I've got this really great idea. And it was my idea like a week ago, but he doesn't realize that. So it's that kind of thing. Okay, brilliant, thanks. Um, Yike has asked a, a question who, who, who um, around authenticity and about obviously there's lots you've talked about here um, and I think what, what's the right time when to choose how to adopt some of these different techniques whilst mm. also sort of retaining your, your authentic characteristics and yes. what makes you. So I'm really glad you asked about authenticity because I think this term is completely misunderstood. People often use it to mean honesty or showing people who I am. And, and like, if you're in charge of a team, if you take authenticity to mean honesty, that means you would go into the team and you'd say, I really don't know if this project is going to work. You know, the last time I tried something like this, it failed. So I don't know, let's just see how it goes, right? The team is not going to react well to that. This is not going to be motivating or engaging. To me, authenticity means that you have a core set of values and principles. So for me, um, it's, I help people learn. That's, that's one of my core values. And I believe in fairness. So the, you know, over time you develop this core set of values and principles. And I think of those as like a little metal ball inside a larger rubber ball. 
And the rubber ball is the face we show the world because, and it's rubber because it's malleable. So if I'm in one situation and I'm trying to help someone learn, if I'm trying to help my boss learn, I'm going to behave in a very different way. I'm going to be much more gentle, much more tentative. Like maybe this would help you. If I'm trying to help one of my team members learn who maybe has made the mistake repeatedly, I'm going to be like, look, you really need to fix this. Okay. In both of these, I'm behaving differently, but the core principle is the same. The goal is the same. And so I think this is the way we think about authenticity is we adjust our external behaviors in order to achieve those core goals. And what we're staying authentic to are the core values and principles. Got it. I think that's, that, that's really helpful. So you had a, a, a top tip um, on um, reading children's books. To, now, I think similar sort of type of question here. This one comes from Tracy Webb. So Tracy says, using pausing instead of filler words seems, seems really important, but I find that really hard. <laughs> Do you have any practical tips to practice? It is really hard. It is really hard. I've been teaching this for a long time and I still occasionally use so is a word that I, I notice I use a lot. So I don't use like anymore or, you know, sometimes I will use um. It's really just being comfortable with silence. Sometimes maybe you just need to like practice uh, giving a presentation alone and recording it and every time you every time you end up putting in a filler word you stop and you catch yourself and you redo that without the filler word you just might need to do that kind of individual practice in order to get used to it but it really is just being aware of when you're about to say it and just not saying it so if practice makes perfect and just real kind of commitment over a and focus over a period of time. Okay, brilliant. A uh, question that's proving quite popular at, at the moment from um, Buana is how can people improve their listening skills? So again, we're really focusing on the, on the top tips here. Listening skills, the first thing is don't think about how you're going to reply. Because if you're thinking about how you're going to reply, you're not really listening. If you challenge yourself to try to restate what the person has just told you, if you're listening to a lecture, then it's writing it, writing it down as notes. So you're restating in your own words what the lecturer has just said. If you're in a conversation, it's saying to them, so let me just be clear. Is this what your view is or something like that? It's restating it. It forces you to really listen. And people often appreciate it if you restate something because then they have a chance to fix what you misunderstood. Perfect, thanks, thanks very much. Um, so um, I think that very, very uh, sort of a few questions coming through at the moment about the role of organizational culture. Like I think kind of perhaps coming back to where we started with the question around hierarchical. Um, I mean, so, so do you, do you have sort of any kind of comments to make on, on how you sort of consider the culture in an organization when you're thinking about influence and, and, and your right? You have to consider the culture, definitely. And when it comes to upward influence, I think the most important thing about the culture is how receptive are the senior people to criticism or feedback. And you'll, 
you'll get a sense for that pretty early on. I've worked in a lot of different companies and I've found just based on my own experience, after about three months or so, okay, if you're working online, if you join the company online, I, I don't know. But this is when you, when you join a company in person, after about three months or so, you kind of have a sense. And you hear stories and you talk to colleagues. I think the most important thing when it comes to upward influence is hearing stories about, did that person get criticized? Did that leader get criticized? And how did they respond? Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. So, so a couple of questions on... Uh, because two or three people have asked it, I'll, I'll ask you because it's quite specific, but Amy Cuddy and power poses. Um, people are interested in your opinion on, on whether this, this, is, this is effective, whether there's any research behind it, what, what you think of it. Yes. So I actually include it in the book and okay. I like the power pose stuff. Amy Cuddy got a lot of criticism for this because the original research, so for those of you who don't know power poses, power poses are poses where you expand your body. So something like this, or like this, um, standing up, obviously, you know, legs spread, that you do in private, you don't do it in front of other people. And the original research said, if you hold it for, I think it was two minutes, you, um, it changes your hormonal levels, you, your cortisol stress hormone goes down, and testosterone goes up, so you feel more confident, and you therefore perform better. The reason the research was criticized was because people who tried to replicate it didn't see any change in the hormonal levels, but they did see that people felt more confident after doing a power pose. And they actually, there was additional research that found if they had half the people do a power pose and the other half not do a power pose, and then those people came out and they did a presentation and the, the, People who were assessing the presentation had no idea who had done a power pose and who hadn't. Those who had done a power pose got better results. They just, they seemed more confident. They seemed more engaging. So there is something about the power pose thing. And I would, I mean, you know, I, I'm not worried whether or not my hormonal levels are being changed. I'm worried if I feel more confident. And I have actually used the power pose quite a lot in situations where I feel really uncomfortable. I'll just go into the bathroom, close the door, hold the power pose for a couple of minutes and then come back out again. Brilliant. Well, I mean, I, I'd say, well, that's, that's really interesting and, 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 and interesting to hear it's in the, in the book then as well. So, I mean, constant, we're, we're heading towards the end of our, our time now. Um, I'm incredibly grateful to you for, um, all, for, for your time today and, and for both answering so many questions as, as, as well as the, the session you've, you've prepared. Um, and thank you to everyone else for joining us as well. I really hope that you've enjoyed it and, and you've found it insightful. Um, for those of you, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you're interested in finding out more about the online certificate courses that Constant has um, delivers, that's MBA Essentials and the Negotiation Program, then you can take a look at uh, the link on the slide on the screen now uh, to see the full portfolio of online certificate courses. And as you also probably picked up, Constance's book, Making Your Voice Heard, will be available this Thursday. Um, our next event in the same series will take place tomorrow, same time, same place, where we will be joined by Dr. Rebecca Newton, Professor Sandy Pepper, and Dr. Emma Sohn, where we'll be looking at how to be effective leaders in a time of huge uncertainty. You can register to join the event on the LSE Festival page now. 
If you uh, want to either watch back anything of what Constant talked about today or catch up on Barbara for Fasolo's session from yesterday, it's available on the LSE Festival Hub. It's available on the LSE Player um, and it's available on YouTube. So head to the LSE website and you can find those links. And um, we very much hope to see you again tomorrow. So thanks very much uh, for joining us and have a great rest of your day.